founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have the world-renowned expert at scaling your business, Vern Harnish, joins us. He's the founder and CEO of Scaling Up, a global executive education and coaching company with over 180 partners on six continents. Vern has spent the past three decades helping companies scale up. He's the author of Mastering the Rockefeller Habits and the Great Business Decision of All Times, and now Scaling Up, which has won eight major international awards, including Best General Business Book. Scaling Up and Vern Scaling Up Summits have helped tens of thousands of businesses achieve hyper-growth. So we are incredibly excited for this conversation. Vern Harnish, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Yeah, good to be on. And welcome to all the founders to this uh, podcast. As you know, we've been referring to there, you guys really are the first responders to the economy. You're the ones that generated all the net new jobs coming out of the last recession. And we're expecting you to do your job here over the next couple of years. Thank That's you. right. That's right. And you've been a huge help in so many of these companies doing just that. So my question to start off for you yeah. is what led to you wanting to be and even starting to engage in becoming an expert in scaling up for businesses? Did that find you? Did you find it? Where did that interest come from? Well, I founded EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization, back in the late 80s. And our kind of YPO that we modeled it after had an executive program at Harvard. And so I felt like we needed one as well. And as you know, tons of stuff on how to start up. I think an incubator on every corner of every city. And I have an MBA, I'm supposed to teach you how to scale a large company, but there wasn't the parenting manual, if you would, of how to grow up a company. Hmm. And so I launched this executive program at MIT. We called Birthing of Giants with both Inc. Magazine and that fine institution. And we spent a decade really refining what would be that parenting manual uh, for uh, scale-ups. And out of that then came the 2002 first book, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. Love that. So yeah, take me even back to that. How did, the, how did EO come about? Well, um, so I grew up around entrepreneurs. My grandmother and grandfather had companies. My dad then, he and some of his partners left the Titan Missile Program at Martin Marietta. And as we know, intact teams that have worked together before, when they launch, they grow further faster. So he and his partners launched a company called Higher Electronics. That was back in the 60s when I was, you know, kind of running around in diapers and then uh, going to school. And so I got to watch them kind of scale it up. And then they had a customer that owed them about a half a million dollars, which was millions equivalent today. Mm. And that was enough to just sink the company as they were growing fast. And essentially the 73 recession put a knife in it. And it was really a richest rag story. And I saw really what it did to my dad, to the family and the like. So look, I kind of dedicated myself to saying, if I can keep entrepreneurs from, you know, facing that same mess, you know, that would be, you know, a good life's work. So in college, I launched the Association of Collegiate Entrepreneurs. I thought there needed to be a place for these young entrepreneurs to hang out. And the clubs were just starting to pop up. Uh, my buddy, Scott Meister, rest his soul, he just passed a few months ago to help get the Harvard club started. Angolicson was getting things going at Stanford. And there wasn't a 
a national, if not global, organization. So we launched that in 83. And as part of that, I threw the first party for Steve Jobs after he was fired from Apple. And he came out and talked deeply about the pain of, of losing his baby. And wow. that evening, uh, and I had Michael Dell there and Mark Cuban and Kevin Harrington and Neil Balter, California Closets, all the, all the young entrepreneurs under 30 at that time. And we did a, an event that evening, and it was kind of amazing how uh, Steve was just standing there in the corner by himself. And uh, I thought, you know, there really needs to be an organization for guys like Steve so they don't feel alone. Hmm. And one of my inspirations is a guy named Joe Mancuso. He still has the CEO clubs today. And Joe had this line that he was, he was my very first speaker ever at that ACE event in 83. And he said, it's okay to be independent, but no reason to be alone. And so if nothing else, I, I feel like if there's a legacy, all these 14,000 plus uh, entrepreneur organization members have got this group of friends through what's called a forum that's there to support them. So they don't feel lonely uh, at the top and through messes like what we're going through. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, well, I'm curious, we, you hear a story like this, if I were listening to the podcast and you start this new organization, your first uh, attendees are literal legends in the business world. And I can't help but wonder how did that, how did those relationships even come about? Were they intentional on your part? Did you just fall into them? Like we just knew each other before? Like how does, how does something like that happen? Well, you know, early on when I launched, I've, I've always thought it was important if you want to build your brand uh, to attach it to other brands and to go get the very best experts you can in, you know, one of the keys I think to scaling is to try to leverage other brands to build your brand. It was why I you know, made sure we got YEO, the original name for EO, kind of attached the Inc and MIT brands when we launched the executive program. And so prior to that, I had read about how this guy Regis McKenna had helped Steve Jobs uh, scale up Apple and was mm. his marketing consultant. And he had talked about how important it was to really do that through relationships. And so I cold called him. I was a student at Wichita State University, and I thought, hey, it's good enough for Steve and Intel and Genentech and most of the rest of the Silicon Valley, and um, maybe it'll help me. So I had a good elevator pitch. It's important for you to really describe the job to be done in the late Clayton Christensen's uh, vernacular. So the job here was to build the world's largest entrepreneurship organization. And Steve and Regis took me on as a client, his only free, he said, he ever had in the history of the firm and said, all right, I'm going to teach you what I taught Steve Jobs. And that was two things. One, set up a marketing meeting separate from sales. And so all the founders that are out there listening, uh, it's so critical as a function to have a well-oiled marketing machine, again, separate from sales. And, and even though I was a startup, it was basically an hour with myself and Rich Moran, the consultant that Regis assigned to me. Uh, we spent an hour focused on the marketing of what it is I want to build, this association of collegiate entrepreneurs. And then he said, the second thing you had to do is take out a piece of paper. And we were talking about this earlier before the interview and make your list of the top 25 influencers, uh, relationships that you need to bolt onto this business, in this case, organization, in order to scale it. And so, and he said, look, the bigger the names, the faster you'll scale. So, you know, as the song goes, I was young, dumb, and broke there in college. And I thought, all right, it's 1983. I'm going to put down President Ronald Reagan. 
Wow. I wanted yeah. him to be the first president of the United States to utter the word entrepreneur. No other president in the U.S. had ever used that term in anything. And sure enough, I got him to do it and was later invited to the White House. Number two on the list was Steve Jobs. And then it was Michael Dell. Michael was just coming on the scene. Uh, I put down then two of the big influencers from the publication standpoint. So Bernie Goldhurst with Inc. Magazine and Arthur Lipper, who at the time owned Venture Magazine. And I didn't know either one of them. I had to look up who owned them, but they were the first five of my 25. And then all we did was spend an hour every week figuring out, all right, how am I going to get the next person on my list to buy in and, and kind of sign on to our vision and, and help? And it was crazy. 36 months later, I'm hosting this event, Bonaventure Hotel. President Reagan's agreed to fly in and give the opening. Thank goodness he got diverted. You don't want to deal with those security issues. <laughs> he gets Mayor Bradley, who the LA airport's named after, to come on stage instead, read his telegram. We're talking about way before email and all of that, uh, to this crowd of almost 1,200 uh, of the top young entrepreneurs from all over the world in this one room. And it was just, and, and later that year, I led the first delegation, official delegation of young entrepreneurs to mainland China. We're talking about 1986. So wow. from idea to global in 36 months, and I really credit Regis McKenna's team, mm. uh, still good friends with Rich Moran today, that I want to get anything accomplished. And I'm, we're working on a big, what we hope is billion dollar opportunity right now. And First thing I did was take out a piece of paper and make the list. And mm. we are working that list. I got one of the key calls done just a few minutes ago. That's why I was a little bit late coming in here. And two more of them later this week to, to move this initiative forward. Wow. I want to stay there because that is really, truly unique. And my brain is already spinning for our business. Uh, yeah. Like Jordan said, how to do that. Do you have any tactical exercise that helps you narrow down that list or, or filter um, who would be appropriate for that list? Well, I think most everyone can put the list together. You know, when Steve Jobs needed to launch iTunes, he simply said, all right, who are the top 25 most influential players in that industry? So I find it's not hard to make the list. I can sit down with almost any entrepreneur and yeah. with a couple of key questions like that, make the list. The real issue is how do you get to those people? Look, I didn't know yes. anyone on my list. And by the way, Steve Jobs didn't know anyone on that list that he put yeah. together and nobody would return his phone call, even though he was Steve Jobs. You know, the egos in the music industry, you know, you couldn't fit, you know, on this planet, uh, generally <laughs> yeah. speaking. And so the key is to always find a way to give before you, you know, make a request. Yeah. And if nothing else, what you can give is your attention. And the, today, the most powerful tool, I think, is Google Alerts. And if people don't know what Google Alerts are, just Google Google Alerts and it's going <laughs> to pop up. And so I'll share the story of Greg Brenneman. I, Greg, he and Bethune turned around Continental Airlines, went from worst to first in two months. The guy raises billions. He has these funds then that run turnarounds. A company called Turnworks is his PE firm. Uh, he is a huge player in our space and wrote an amazing book called Right Away and All at Once. And so I wanted to get to Greg and look, I didn't know him and, and I didn't really have a good third party introduction. And so I just put him in Google alerts. And then what you do is you call the office and you find out who their assistant is and his assistant's Carolyn. And you treat them with the utmost respect. And then what I would do is as information news, 
Google's doing that might work for me, tracking where they are, what's going on, what's happening. As things would pop about Greg, it would give me a reason to reach out to him. Wow. Uh, and if nothing else, give my attention, my appreciation, my congratulations to an award he won in Kansas. And I was familiar with it, having gone to, to school in, in Wichita. And so that helped us nurture our relationship. And then I found a way to really support his efforts uh, through my work. And ultimately today, we're, we're close acquaintances. Good wow. friends. He's, he, he's, you know, most recently when he said, hey, he was going to be in town, he was going to give me a, you know, one to set up dinner. I happened to be out of, out of the country at that time. But that's how it's done. And then I use Google Alerts to stay in touch with them. Mm. Um, I yeah. have just met through Adam Grant, the great give and take author, you know, Sarah Fryer, the CEO of Nextdoor, and yeah. it just so happened, I uh, hosted her last Thursday, really just met her, uh, but I have her email address. Well, something popped around a topic that I know she's really interested in, in Fortune this morning by Alan Murray, and so it gave me a reason to reach out to Sarah and mm -hmm. share that information with her, and she seemed generally appreciative that I had brought this really important community example to her attention. And it's, it's really done with, with no expectation in return at all. It's just me giving and nurturing that relationship and building to a point where uh, if you've got something that is mutually of interest, then you've got some support there that you might need. Yeah. So that's in a practical way how you do this. The other way is through charities. Uh, I met some of the top influencers that have helped me along the way through charity work that I've done. It seems to be yeah. at charities that I don't care who they are, they, they tend to let their guard down and they're in a different mindset, right. particularly a mindset of giving. Generous. So yeah. that's, uh, those are a couple of the really important. Love things. that. I love the, uh, the, through the assistant, you mentioned that one just for a second. I think I, I even heard you mention on one of your talks, never eat alone that book. I think yeah. that's when I first came across the concept of, hey, treat the assistants like gold. They are the gatekeepers. Yeah, um, yeah, that is fantastic. Yeah, don't go around them. Make sure you thank them. Always have them copied because uh, you know their work's really hard. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Man. Well, I would love to know um, just off the top of your head as you're helping organizations today in the current climate, whether it's 21st century, meaning just how yeah. technology's improved and, and where we are today as an economy and or now with COVID and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but if I were to ask you, what are the major mistakes that you see people maybe uh, that are looking to grow and scale their business that if they were to avoid would really help them out a lot? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I beamed in for an EO Harvard event uh, a few hours ago and this very thing came up and, and in essence, uh, there's really two things that I see. These are the two big mistakes. First, thinking everyone's your customer uh, and not really going after the most narrow of initial niche. Yeah, you know, yeah. Southwest Airlines, when they launched, they just wanted to go after traveling salespeople. You know, Domino's was for college students. Obviously, the market became much, much bigger. But I, I point out what I call the 770 rule. You know, Starbucks still only has 4% of the coffee business in the United States, yet they're 40% of the stores. Amazon only is now approaching 2% of the market space of retail, even wow. though they're a dominant player online. Um, Ikea, 
less than 7% of people buy their furniture there, but they're the 100-ton gorilla. Apple only has 14% market share, but they own almost 70% of the profit. So you want to go after profit share, not market share. Mm. And I'll tell you a quick story that, uh, so I had met him first in Barcelona, and that was uh, Nate uh, Blacharik, Blacharik. I, he, he knows people have a hard time pronouncing his name, the <laughs> yes. co-founder, one of the three co-founders of Airbnb. Yeah. And I remember Nate telling the story where, you know, they really kind of messed around for five years and they mm. couldn't, they could not get that company going. In fact, Paul Graham didn't even accept him initially into the Y Combinator until they saw kind of their clever cereal box promotion. They thought, hey, these guys have a marketing bent and Paul's smart enough to know that marketing is critical to any scale up. And so he, he has them into Y Combinator. They're still not going any place. And Paul finally says, all right, you know, where are your best customers? And they're like, well, everywhere. He goes, no, 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 no. Like right now, where on the planet do you have the most customers? Where are they? And they go, well, we have 20 in New York City. Yeah. And that was like the, the most they had in any city in the United States, That's let alone the world. And, so, and they're out in California. So Paul's like, pack up your bags. You're moving to New York. And you always have to make it local first. And mm. he says, I want you to figure out why you only have 20 after being at this for five years in New York solve the problem for them. He found it. They didn't have good descriptions and good photos. It usually something similar like that, simple like that. And then they stayed till they scaled to 200. And once they had a good foothold and enough people wanted to come from all over the world to New York that these people then said, hey, we love the concept. I want to go back in Paris and do that. And the company finally took off. So you have to really go narrow and niched uh, and you got to stay there for a long time and you may never leave. Mm. The, the second, I think, big mistake that people make is you have to be different. And everybody says that. But if you price the same way as your competition, you're not different. If you deliver the product or service in roughly the same way everyone else does, you're fooling yourself. You're not different. If you hire the same people everyone else does, you're not different. So this idea that you have to be different has to be in all aspects of the business. And most people don't get there. And that's why they don't, they may scale, but they don't have the really financial success uh, that comes with it if you've done it right. So be different and go after profit share instead of market share. I love that. Yeah, it makes me think of the first time I heard Seth Godin talking about finding your tribe. Right. And he was talking about like getting down to your minimum viable audience yeah. where it's got to be viable. Right. Like you've got to find a tribe that's viable. Um, but it made me uncomfortable. And I think that's what I knew was good advice uh, because yeah. Vern, something in us wants to go broad when we get scared. Right. Like that's why we say I want everyone to be my audience because you think you're increasing the chances of yeah. success, but you're actually decreasing it by dispersing your efforts, your energies, all those kinds of things. Yeah. How have you helped people? overcome that fear of still just trying to go too broad too and, and not really narrowing in and finding comfort in the discomfort of really choosing a niche. Yeah. Well, it's, there's a timing for everything, Drew. And so it's actually okay. 
And that's why I love Marshall Goldsmith's book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. What, what gets you here is trying to be everything to everybody. That's okay in the first two or three years. And mm. I really don't begrudge Nate, you know, Brian and Joe for doing that. Sometimes you got to stumble around to figure out that, hey, we ought to really get going in New York City first. So don't beat, don't beat yourself up too much. It's at that point where you've got enough at least foundation. It's one of the reasons why you have to have at least a million a year in revenue to get into to EO. Now it's time, if you're going to cross that chasm and really scale, for you then to go in. It's really an, it's an analytical process. Mm. It's you saying, all right, of all the customers we have, who do we enjoy working with the most? Who we seem to have yeah. the most success with? Uh, what clients did we make the most money off of or projects? And that's when you say, all right, that's our core juicy red core center, you know, customer. Yeah. And then just go after more of those. Yeah. Uh, I love that. And I want to even take I want to take the, the season that we're in this COVID season to, to extract some of the leadership lessons that you're, you're seeing too. Cause I think it's, so we've, we're, I don't know, 20 interviews in now, uh, and you're somewhere around 2021. But it, one of the things we always are asking our entrepreneurs uh, and our founders is, you know, what's your consistent present problem that you're dealing with right now? And something that we wanted to ask all of them to, to get to know and start to gather our own research towards towards them. Yeah. Well, right now, it's so quick, they're going towards COVID, right? And, and it's like, yeah, of course, it's, an, it's a huge external threat that, I guess the world has really never seen much like this, at least not recently. And so what, what leadership lessons um, have emerged for you that you're coaching people up on and, and what, what traps are you seeing people fall in? Um, that maybe they should avoid. Well, when this thing hit back in March, uh, we put out a piece called the five C's of leading in a crisis. And the first C is just to over communicate and really fall back on this thing we became well known for early on, which is the daily huddle. Mm. Kate, and Nate shared yeah. it last week, the minute this, this crisis hit and they lost a billion dollars. I mean, can you imagine being Airbnb? And the first thing that Nate, Joe and Brian and the senior team did is they went into a daily meeting seven days a week. No, not unlike what Steve Jobs did when he came back to try to save his baby Apple and he set up the situation room and they met daily. He continued to meet daily then with Jonathan Ive up until the very end. Getting in this consistent, frequent meeting rhythm is absolutely crucial all the time, but it's vitally critical when you're in this kind of a crisis. Yeah. And then the second thing is to piece together wins. The, the, the toughest thing in general when you're scaling is to maintain the big mo, momentum. And so if you want to accomplish something big, you do it through little wins. And that's why getting really crystal clear about what is the sprint. And that's, you know, a term, no, nobody wants to run a marathon. And yeah. as Ari Weinsweig, the founder of Zingerman said, when I saw him for lunch a couple of months ago in Ann Arbor, he said, you know, this COVID thing feels like a marathon through a minefield. Yeah. And the only way I know it around a marathon is kind of a hundred yard, 100 meter dash at a time. I'm not in shape to do uh, yeah. that marathon. So piece together sprints awesome. towards a goal and then talk about it daily. Yeah. 
I love those. I will say, you know, you can use us as one of your examples too, because we did daily habits uh, or daily huddles. Yeah. Um, that was something that we did during that quarter that we made that, that shift. And then the sprints were something that we were already starting. We, we had already implemented, but keeping score uh, was huge. And that was uh, some advice. A gentleman, Randy Dobbs, he was a CEO of GE, uh, GE Healthcare. He lives here in Greenville, South Carolina. Yeah. and has become a great advisor mentor. That was his first, I think we met with him late March, uh, first week of April, something like that. But that was his advice was you got to keep score differently. And the sprint was something that allowed us to keep score in a different way while, you know, yeah. our world is shifting under our feet as well. And such a guiding force for the over-communication, keeping track differently. I love, I love that. I'm going, man, I think we received good advice uh, advice to make sure we did that. But I think that is that is great. That's really good. I'd love to ask. Oh, go ahead. You got a thought? Well, and we and we really got down to when when and who knows, we may be hitting some really tough times again, depending on what the second wave yeah. might be. We're really encouraging leaders to get down to thinking, all right, what's just the one thing I need to accomplish in the next hour? Mm. And then most importantly, give yourself permission to take a small break. I, yeah. I look, I admit it. I love playing solitaire and yeah. I crank really hard for like an hour, 90 minutes. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to get up. I'm going to get a cup of tea or I've got my keyboard over here. Yeah. I'll play the yeah. piano a little bit, or I'm going to play a round or two of solitaire. And Susan David, who we had on early said, you got to realize that we're all suffering at some level PTSD. We've been really yeah. shell shocked. And that can lead to some really bad situations and behavior. And the only way to really deal with that is to put it in your schedule three times a day that you're going to do something for yourself. And that was critical to getting through this. Man. And I think is always critical. That is goal. I want to stay there for a second. So just so you know, for Drew and I, I haven't even talked about it, but like our focus is, is talent optimization as it relates to this uh, fast growth companies. And one of the conversations that is always going to come up but in terms of like the season for it is, is around stress and is around people's relationship to stress. And so I love that, like permission to take breaks. Um, maybe any other things, it falls into the stress management category that sounds a bit too, I don't know. I don't love it towards in terms of how to actually teach it. Like, hey, this is a real thing. We interviewed an entrepreneur just recently that like his life would have ended if he didn't change his relationship to how he, he, he addressed stress in his own life. Uh, what things I already love that you mentioned, you have a, you know, a piano right over to your right, like that, our keyboard release. That's fantastic. I love that creative expression. Yeah. Some people gave us advice of like, Hey, every two hours, take a 30 minute break. That was some advice I, we received to change up how we go about work. But what other ways would you suggest for, for the founders or for that executive team to, to go about managing stress differently versus just cranking harder? Um, you know, I, it, first of all, it's a mindset. There was an HBR article, we point stress will depend on how you deal with stress. And if you think stress is bad, then it's going to hurt you. It's, it's kind of that simple. Yeah. And so part of it is you have to realize that, um, you know, our bones get stronger under stress. Uh, yeah. I'm going to see my friend here in a moment who's one of the consultants to NASA in terms of you know sport medicine and those kind of things yeah and their issue is that because the bones aren't under stress that's the big issue of space travel 
on the yeah. moon, let alone all the way to Mars. So first, it's embracing the fact that we've been designed to get stronger under stress. Our immune system, by the way, is anti-fragile. It's designed yeah. to actually get stronger right. under these distresses. This overuse of antibiotics, this overuse of, of antibacterial soaps and things like that over our modern era literally has led to, I think, one of the reasons why we're seeing such bad reaction to what is not really a new virus. It's not that novel uh, from our research, but we're not in good shape. Our immune systems are in really bad shape as are our mentality because we've had this uh, over focus on safety. Yeah, yeah. And, and raising children and trying to protect them actually made them brittle and mm -hmm. has made our companies and our country brittle instead yeah. of anti-fragile. So yeah, you know, it's a long conversation we no. have. Resilient is yeah. the wrong issue. It's yeah. the wrong question. You well, need yeah. to be anti-fragile. When we talk yeah. about when we talk about stress, uh, what I what I how I've typically communicated is just yeah. like culture, just like public opinion, we te we tend to either worship it or demonize it. And both are extreme mistakes, right? When we worship it, we yeah. get like the founder we had on who literally developed an autoimmune disease and he had piercing pain in his eyes because he was blind, not taking yeah. care of himself, mentally, emotionally, calendar-wise, stressed to the yeah. max. So that would be, in a sense, worshiping it, like burning the candle at both ends. Yeah. Or we demonize it and we're like, I'm trying to rid my life of stress. And the way that we think about it is like, that's like working out and saying, I'm not going to work out under tension. You're going to atrophy. And if you overdo it, you're going to injury. But if you do it right, you get stronger under stress, right? And we yeah. just had the we just had the owners of Sorenex on the podcast who have all the uh, weight machines around the world and in every NFL locker room, and uh, they were talking about the same thing yeah. that in in every and like in technology, you're always looking for efficiency. You want to like remove friction. But he's like, the yeah. human body is not that way. He's like, we're intentionally trying to not be efficient. We want to put it under strain and stress so that it can grow, uh, which I think is, is brilliant. Uh, give a quick uh, teaching too, or just some, some information on, on anti-fragile. It's, it's a concept that's near and dear to, to Drew and even parts of how we operate, trying to build out our own internal culture. Cause we know that like the family unit is a great example in, on, on earth in terms of its anti-fragile properties, right? Like, Hey, when, when a death in the family happens, everybody actually shows up to that event and they come closer together. Yeah. I find it just as a fascinating thing for businesses to start paying attention to. And I've heard you talk about it in the past, anti-fragile versus something else, but get, give the audience just a little bit of understanding of like, I think that we need to move towards anti-fragile thinking during this season specifically. Yeah. And so uh, what wisdom do you have there to, to pass on to us? Well, I think first read the book, Anti-Fragile. Uh, Nassim Taleb is brilliant. He's the one who wrote his first book, Black Swan, which yeah. is exactly this kind of you know thing that we're going through as a Black Swan moment. Yeah. And in essence, for companies to be anti-fragile, uh, and it's one of the reasons why I think the unicorns have done well, those companies that go, went from zero to a billion quick and continue to do well in this mess, is uh, the key is they have figured out how to distribute their marketing, their sales, their business model. In essence, it's what we call lessons from the hive. 
I'm co-founder mm. of a, a group called Geoversity. We're based out of the jungles of Panama. And first, no hive would do to itself what we've done to ourselves as human beings. And they've been dealing with pandemics for millions of years. We've only been dealing with it for maybe 100 or 1,000 years. And part of the key is because um, the creativity, the way it's dealt with is distributed across the entire hive. It's not, you don't have experts. In fact, every time I read a news item on CNN or whatever the case is, and I try to avoid all news, I see the word expert says, you know, experts is how we used to do things if I were to right. pick a restaurant. Experts is how I used to decide which product I wanted to buy. Experts is who I used to read in the Encyclopedia Britannica. But guess what? We use TripAdvisor, Wikipedia, and all kinds of other crowdsourced. Mm. Uh, I needed to change the battery in my, my girlfriend partner's Audi. We didn't have time to get the dealership. And so I Googled it. And sure enough, somebody in the hive had produced a YouTube video, no expert, that showed me in three minutes how to change that battery uh, in our Audi remote. So the company that I first learned it from was, was Microsoft. I was invited under the tent in Toronto in 96 when they released Windows. And, and what folks don't realize is that uh, at the time, 99% of their revenue was driven by Microsoft's, Microsoft solution providers. Those are five times the number of employees than it worked for Microsoft. Microsoft that are not on Microsoft's payroll. They have today mm. 65,000 solution providers out there duking it out in the marketplace, and they're not on Microsoft's payroll. And Whoa. if you were to lose 20% of them in this crisis, in some sense, the other 80% are going to be even happier, and they're just going to pick up the pieces <laughs> along the way. And if we've learned anything about working from home, is we don't need all this expertise and we don't need all this management. It's just this yeah. unnecessary bureaucracy of overhead that weighs down the people doing the work, adds about 30% to our payroll and slows things down. Mm. Yeah. So there's a lot to this topic and the smart companies have already structured themselves. So let me just give a book recommendation that yeah. really addresses it for us. It came out three weeks ago. We had them last week at our summit. And that's Gary Hamill's Humanocracy. I, hmm. I already consider it the best book written this year, if not this decade. Wow. The 20s called Humanocracy. So I hope all, every founder uh, reads yeah, it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, and I think you're, you're already kind of hitting on it, but uh, really talking about org structures and in this, this concept of the agile scale up. Yeah. that I've heard you, you talk about. And I'm sure that's, that's in that book. I'm almost curious about, hey, what functions um, need to be decentralized? Like you're talking about creativity, like we need to decentralize that, we need to extract, but also on the counter, like, hey, what needs to stay st central? What needs to stay in the center? What should the center own as you have a decentralized, a dispersed workforce now because we have to be working from home? Um, that concept has just kind of come to my mind of like, hey, what should be decentralized and what needs to be centralized uh, is, is interesting to me. Well, I, I, the word centralized, I think we just need to get rid, out of, get rid of it in yeah. our vocabulary. Hmm. Um, but there needs to be some common culture yeah. that is you know, expressed through the core values, the purpose, the three brand 
promises and the big, hairy, audacious goal. Those, those four yeah. components of what we call a complete vision align very much with what Jim Collins had discovered in all yeah. of his work. That needs to sit at the center yeah. of the hive, uh, the tribe, if you would, the term that you guys yeah. used. And then the rest of it, I, Bootsark, which is the big, one of the key examples in, in Gary's book, you know, they've got 14,000 nurses and, and others all over the globe today. Yeah. And there's only about 50 people at what you'd call headquarters. Mm. Uh, there are no vice presidents and regional this, that, and the other things. And the, the, the modern version for us mere mortals is Ron Lovett's company. The, the book I named a couple of years ago, number one, was called Outrageous Empowerment. And Ron's one of us. Uh, he founded a company in Canada that scaled to 1,500 private security guards and only eight leaders in that entire company. And he decentralized everything. My, if, if I've got a moment, I'll just tell you my favorite story Please. that I think is indicative of this. So he acquires um, a location and he finds out that, you know, first thing they need is better cars. Now, that would normally be a centralized decision in most companies because you can't allow frontline employees to go make such an important decision, right? I say that in quotes because a lot of his private security guards are former police officers and others who are making life and death real decisions. And so this one security guard says, hey, Ron, I know the local car dealers and I, I'm, I guarantee you, I can get you the best car for the best price here in town. And who fought him with his CFO, right? Because the CFO is like, well, wait a second. That's my job. It needs to be centralized purchasing. Ron's like, no, let him do it. Well, sure enough, he comes back with a much better car at a much lower price than what they've been getting from a fleet price. And the result, he fired a CFO. And (laughs) he's like, look, I want to make a point here. We're all adults. You, you know, there's no middle management in a hive. There's the queen, which I think is interesting, not a king. There's a yeah. queen and just workers. But what has to be in common, and I, I want to be real clear on this, is two things. One, you have to have the equivalent of a Wikipedia or a YouTube channel in your company. Mm. Those 14,000 nurses, if they're having a hard time finding a blood vessel to draw blood on on Saturday night, they're not going to try to find some VP to get a Mm -hmm. hold of. They're going to go to like what we do, the equivalent of an internal YouTube channel, and they're going to find a video that's been promoted up by the other 13,999 nurses who said, you know what, that's the best way in Mm. this situation to draw blood. So you've got to have that common, open, shared knowledge base uh, and then number yeah. two, you've got to have first-class training and development because you're not going to turn this over to stupid people. Right, and right. Nobody wants to scale with stupid people. So world-class training and development like the Navy SEALs and world-class technology where they have access to the intel that generals would have, again, just like the Navy SEALs. And that's how you want to get structured. Man, that is unbelievable. And definitely, uh, you were right. You were speaking our, our language. That excites yeah. us. Yeah, um, what I want to know before we transition to the lightning round is actually something you mentioned at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you talked about the two things, um, I believe it was when you were talking about the two things that were, were taught to you that helped you out. One of them was around marketing. And yeah. you talked about splitting marketing and sales. 
but really I've discovered for our company, we've yeah. discovered for many companies, marketing seems to be one of the toughest things for people to understand. And I would just love any insight you could give, not just us, but the founders listening, like what's the thing we need to be focusing on? What, what advice would you give us when thinking about marketing for our companies and growing and scaling them? Yeah. Well, there's, there's really two agenda items for that one hour. So first have a separate marketing meeting. Okay. Steve Jobs, by the way, is the only function he chaired at Apple. And it was a three yep. hour meeting every Wednesday afternoon. So Steve continued on leading mm -hmm. that function and driving it with a meeting every week. So I can't, I can't emphasize that enough. And then you're going to work on really two things in that meeting. One, you're going to work your list of influencers. And then number two, you're going to work on the four P's of marketing that have been updated by Ogilvy. And you can Google the four E's of marketing. And that's what you're going to spend an hour or two or three every week on. What do we have to do to be better at these four things? And the one that we've really been emphasizing is the P of price or the E equivalent is exchange. Uh, if there's a huge mistake or, or area of the business that does not get near enough attention by founders, CEOs, and that is the pricing side of the business. It's the only P that makes you money immediately. You, mm -hmm. you can raise price by a dollar. It normally goes right to the bottom line where the other ones, you got to spend money to make money. And the reason we get Drew Price so wrong and the equivalent internally is compensation. It's our single largest cost. And I got to tell you, it's supposed to be a motivator, but the way most comp systems are set up, they're demotivating. They're, they're making things worse. Mm, and it's yeah. your largest expense. So the reason we get price and compensation wrong is because they both involve people. And the one thing that we know about people, they are not logical. They are psychological. And so pricing is a psychology game. It has nothing to do with logic and these, you know, I'm an engineer by training and, and the number one profession at the top of most Inc. 5,000 companies are engineers. This is the point yeah. where we really mess things up because we try to use logic mm. to set compensation and logic to set pricing. So mm. that's where you need to up your game. I could talk for an hour yeah. on pricing, but what I'd encourage everyone to do is go get a book called beat the crisis. It was written back in the last crisis by the guru of pricing, Herman Simon, another gentleman who I use Google Alerts to network my way to, and now he's a dear friend, yeah. uh, pricing guru on the planet. Go to chapter six in Beat the Crisis, and he outlines seven pricing strategies to use in a crisis. And by the way, I think they're just great pricing strategies in general versus just lowering your price yeah. in a situation like this. So yeah. that's um, what I would really spend a lot of time working on is price. Fantastic. That's and why I, I should that. say, uh, Herman says there's only two mistakes we make in pricing. You charge too much or you charge too little. <laughs> and that's why, that's why it's both an art and a science. Yes. That is golden. Yeah, that answered it. That already uh, answered one of my questions I was planning on asking offline. So I'm glad that everybody got it. Which is good for that. <laughs> um, that's fantastic. It. Thank you, well, Vern. Hey, let's hit this lightning round. Uh, thank you so much right. for the time you've given us. Uh, question number one is, if you could ingrain one message into an organization, what would it be? Ambition. To be ambitious. And, 
And I take that from Margaret Heffernan, who was the very first speaker that we booked at the very beginning of this crisis. And she got on and said, this is the time to be ambitious. Mm. And yeah. I think that's what you always have to be. Fantastic. Beautiful. Love that. Question number two, what's the single best advice you ever received about growing your business and the single worst advice? Well, the best was absolutely Regis McKenna's advice. Yeah. Face with anything, get the piece of paper out and make a list. And you get things done through people, through relationships, through influence. Um, the worst piece of advice, you know, what I, what I love about entrepreneurs is, and it's like salespeople, you know, we have this little flusher in our head and if things don't work out, we just flush it out really quickly. Yeah. So it doesn't sit there and haunt us. So what is the worst piece of advice? I, well, the first thing that comes to mind is buying certain stocks. And, and, yeah. what it, and here's, what, here's what I think it means. Um, you need to make all your decisions based on firsthand knowledge, mm -hmm. not through others. And so I think, in general, the worst advice I've ever received was secondhand. Mm. Yeah. Advice versus, and why it's so important in EO that you don't should on people that you share experience that you've yeah. lived yourself and not give advice. So I think that's the, yeah. the key. that's fantastic. Uh, thank you for that. Number three, uh, being completely honest, what's yeah. the, the biggest stressor for you that would keep you up at night or what's the, the secret fear that could keep you up at night? What's that for you? Uh, and always not reaching full potential. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, I, we just want to help 10 X more companies and one of the things I've learned about thought leaders is they teach that which they need to learn the most. And I teach scaling up, but I'm not a billion dollar company yet, which is at some level crazy. So I want to <laughs> fix that. I'm serious. I want, yeah. I want to fix it. And it's been a life mission of mine to understand where's the, my constraint. And yeah. I think we, we're at it in, in getting that fixed. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, question number four, what's the dream result that you're driving towards every day? Well, it, yeah, I, there was just a great article last week in Forbes on Chuck Feeney. He's, he's my hero. You know, yeah. he, he helped scale up duty-free shops to $8 billion worth for himself. And he spent the last gazillion years giving it all away. And for me, it's cemented that the only KPI that matters is the number of people in absolute numbers that you've helped along the way up until the very end. Mm. And so I, I'm just focused on trying to 10X that. So fantastic. Uh, number five, this is a fun one. Uh, if you could hop in a DeLorean, you get to go back to the future. Uh, you're gonna go back for five seconds to your past. You're gonna shout one thing to, to yourself from the driver window. When are you going back and what would you say? I think I'm going to go back to age 15. My dad had lost everything. We're moving from this wealthy neighborhood to Kinsley, Kansas, and a couple of wheat trucks. And, and I th the phrase is just let it go. You know, if I've gotten in trouble, it's because I didn't let something go. Hmm. You would have been yeah. ahead of your, if you say that, you would have been ahead of your time with Elsa and, and Frozen uh, saying, <laughs> let it. it go, let it go. I, you know, or let it be, you know, yeah. it's still one of my favorite, 
favorite thugs of all time. Man, that is so good. Well, Vern, before we go, I want the audience, because we mentioned it in passing, but I want to directly mention it. Your book, Scaling Up, is phenomenal. And we are so enjoying it, taking notes, as you can tell in this conversation. And I'd love just for you to maybe in 10 seconds, 30 seconds, however, whatever you want, uh, just to give the audience a quick idea of what the book is about and why they should get it. Yeah. Um, You know, I wish business was this organized, but we put it in four decisions that you've got to get right. And we think there's right and wrong answers. You got to nail the people, the relationships, the strategy, then you've got to execute and you can't run out of cash. So people, strategy, execution, and cash. Hmm. And then I've referenced 40 other books in that book because we know I don't have all the answers. Uh, You got to normally triangulate your way to the truth. And so we tried to just give some real good tools and references just to make better decisions. And all success is, is making slightly better decisions by everybody in your business and those that surround it than the competition. So mm-hmm. it's better decisions. I love yeah. it. Okay, so yeah. we can find it everywhere. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, is there anywhere else that we could point people to for resources, either to stay up to date with you or to uh, connect with more of what you're doing in the world? Yeah. Well, it is in 18 languages as well. In fact, I was just in China before this mess Uh, broke loose, uh, releasing the Chinese Simplified. So just go to scalingup.com. So we kept it simple, the name of the book. And there's a side site we launched in the crisis called Mm scalingforward.com that looks specifically at four Ps of what you need to do to really power through this. So scalingup.com and scalingforward.com, all kinds of free stuff there that people can use. It's it's all open source to to download for free. Awesome. You are the legend. You lived up to all the hype. Uh, Thank you so much for being on the podcast with us and sharing your wisdom with our audience. You're welcome. Drew, thank you, Jordan. Good luck out there. Thanks, guys. Be safe and be free, my friends. That's right. Yes, sir. Will do. Bye. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.
Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.